This is Chris Casey, Managing Director at Windrock Wealth Management, a unique investment advisory firm with a focus on the macroeconomic big picture and an entrepreneurial mindset to seize on opportunities. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined with Amir Idnani, CEO and founder of Uranium Energy Corp. UEC is a U.S.-based uranium mining exploration company. It's listed on New York Stock Exchange with the ticker UEC. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Chris. So in today's markets, you know, pretty much across all asset classes, stocks, bonds, et cetera, really across all geographic regions, at least in the developed world, it's really difficult to find anything of value, meaning everything is really high from a historical perspective in price. And uranium, though, we're looking at a 10-year low. In fact, if you look at uranium price since July of 07, it's off about 80%. I mean, what, in your opinion, accounts for this price decline over that time period? First of all, uh, not to make it sound worse than it is, but we're actually at a 12-year low, and um, and it has been a, a very disappointing year to see the uranium price really underperform, uh, starting the year at around $37 per pound, and uh, currently sitting just around $18 per pound. Uh, and um, you know, I would say that um, uh, probably a number of factors have to do with. Uh, uh, this underperformance, and one, it, it really goes back to some of the themes that perhaps are uh, ongoing themes. Uh, one being the uh, the nuclear uh, situation in Japan. In terms of uh, six years ago, when you had the Fukushima accident, <clears throat> Japan shut down roughly 54 nuclear reactors. Today, only four reactors are back online. If we look at expectations, uh, a couple of years ago, people were forecasting that by end of 2016 there would be over 20 reactors back online. That's a big difference, right, to expect over 20 and only have four. Uh, so I think the ongoing um, slow recovery, slower than expected recovery in Japan, uh, has, um, has to do with, uh, uh, you know, one of the issues here in terms of continuing to put additional supply in the market uh, or supply that was previously destined for Japan but is not, is not going to be consumed there and hence, again, creates a bit of an oversupply. You have the fact that one of the world's, and if not but the biggest producer in the world, uh, the country of Kazakhstan, has seen a major devaluation of its uh, local currency to the U.S. dollar. Uh, so even to some extent has seen um, some preservation of margin with uh, the weaker local currency and the stronger dollar. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you kind of combine these facts along with the, the notion that in the U.S. in the last eight years under the Obama administration, Nuclear power really was not uh, supported uh, the way you figure uh, uh, an energy source as as important and as strategic as nuclear power should be, uh, and um, and I think this probably hurt nuclear power in the U.S., where a few nuclear reactors were shut down prematurely, and uh, being able to permit uranium mines just took so much longer under a very uh, uh, contentious EPA that was uh, very difficult to work with. So. These factors all, I think, go hand in hand and, um, uh, and really cause this underperformance that we've seen and the uranium price at a 12-year low. Let's talk, put that uranium price in kind of economic terms. The last I looked, I think it was around $21. Now, how does this price relate to, to all-in costs to produce? There's an industry advisory service, UX Consulting, and they track the all-in cost for all uranium producers worldwide. And the lowest cost uranium mine in the world, called Keratau in Kazakhstan, 
as an all-in production cost of about $22 per pound. So what's uh, quite shocking, but to some extent bullish about the price being in the high teens, is that there isn't a single uranium mine on Earth that can make money with today's uranium price when you consider where all-in costs are. Well, that's bullish in the sense that when, you know, the old adage about the cure for low commodity prices is low commodity prices, that doesn't get any more true than this, especially when you have a commodity price in uranium that's not just below the marginal cost of production, it's not just below the average cost of production, it is below anyone's cost of production. Um, and uh, that's a very compelling picture to keep in mind. That's pretty shocking. You know, we're, we're big believers in contrarian investing. And a lot of times people equate that with just looking for an asset price that's extremely high or low on a relative basis. But there's another component to it, and that is finding the catalyst that brings its price to a more reasonable valuation. And so with uranium, we're obviously at extreme lows, like you mentioned, 12-year lows, way below cost of production for even low-cost producers. And as you mentioned, the a, a cure for low prices is low prices, and meaning everyone picks up on what that, that describes, but it's describing the supply destruction in, in the industry when you, prices are too low by producers. So has this low price level since really the 07 high, has it affected supply? Or as you mentioned with the example of Kazakhstan, has supply stayed strong regardless? It's definitely had um, uh, a very meaningful impact to supply growth and that uh, the, the growth uh, for the most part has come from uh, Kazakhstan and there really hasn't been any other significant exploration development activity. And um, let's, let's complete the picture here. Let's, you know, we, we, we kind of talked about this 12-year low price, right? And so let's, let's kind of put a little bit more context into that. So if we go back to 12 years ago, um, so we're looking now at uh, 2004 and compare the, the, the market for uranium and nuclear power in 2004 to 2016. Um, it's quite instructive in the sense that while the price is the same as 2004, being roughly you know, in the high teens or $18 a pound, if we look at the fundamentals and fundamental, let's say, in terms of growth, the growth in the nuclear industry comes from how many reactors are under construction worldwide because that's the source of demand. Today there are over 60 nuclear reactors under construction worldwide, 6-0. And back in 2004, the last time the uranium price was this low, there were 20 reactors under construction worldwide, a third of what it is right now. So you have fundamental growth or demand almost three times larger today than back 12 years ago. And then when you go back to 12 years ago, there was a very important source of secondary supply in the market. And secondary supply back then refers to uh, a, an agreement, an old agreement between the United States and Russia to dismantle Soviet-era warheads and to feed that uranium into the market. And that exercise provided almost the single largest source of uranium in the market at supply, over 20 million pounds a year. So if that was a mine, it would, would have been the world's biggest uranium mine. And that was a contract that was in place back in 2004, and it kept going until 2013 when it finally expired. That source of secondary supply, that large inventory, um, doesn't exist anymore. Now, there are other inventories out there, Japanese inventories. Uh, there are still Department of Energy inventories. But the exercise of dismantling Soviet-era warheads and converting the uranium for power generation, uh, that exercise has ended. Uh, and as an arrangement, doesn't exist anymore. I think that's very bullish for the price arguments today. 
If you look back then in 2004, the biggest uh, project in the world that was under construction, Cigar Lake in Canada, uh, that has already come into production. There isn't another Cigar Lake out there under construction today. That was such an anomalously large and high-grade project. Um, so I'm, um, I'm quite excited when I think about sort of what happened in 2004 with a growth profile of only a third of what we have today. Uh, with uh, a large mine under construction back then from a supply side, which we don't have anymore today. And you know what happened back in 2004, Chris? Look back to then what happened in 05 and 06 and 07. 2004 led the way for one of the biggest bull runs we had seen in the uranium market, where we went from uh, $18 a pound in 2004 to $140 a pound by summer of 2007. Uh, and I believe the stage is set very similarly to see a similar kind of rally uh, and um, and perhaps uh, perhaps even sharper. What's astonishing numbers uh, as far as the rise in the price of uranium? And of course, uranium companies or producers that have operating financial leverage potentially have far, even far greater upside than the price of the metal as well. Um, let's. You had mentioned demand. Let's move on to the demand side. You had mentioned the number of power plants in con in construction right now, nuclear power plants. And over at over 60, and if you look at worldwide, and it's been a few months since I pulled these numbers, but there, there's over just over 400 nuclear reactors, I believe, worldwide. Over 60 in right. cons construction, let's say 170 planned, and another just over 300 proposed. And so the, the demand side, as far as the growth of nuclear energy, just looks staggering. Not only what's in construction, but what's on the drawing board or even what's in the development stages today. Can you comment what's what's driving that tremendous growth in demand? It's a combination of factors. And any government, any policymaker, any utility that looks at the, a diversified energy mix to satisfy the electricity needs of 7 billion people in the world, uh, you have to have energy sources and electricity generating sources that are reliable, uh, baseload, low cost, around the clock, and uh, very importantly these days, uh, carbon emission free and secure. You can check all those boxes when it comes to nuclear power. You can check all those boxes because uh, when you think about uh, nuclear power's capability, uh, it has an enormous capability to generate clean carbon, uh, carbon free electricity that's around the clock. That's what baseload means, right? The ability to generate electricity 24 /7, 24 7, 365. Uh, and that's something that renewables don't have. And that's something that for nuclear, when you think about any economy that is a modern economy, that has a modern healthcare system, modern transportation system, modern education system, you need baseload power, the backbone of any electricity grid. That's what nuclear is. That's why 20% of power generation in, a, in the United States is nuclear power. That's why before the Fukushima accident in Japan, over 30% of power generation in that country was nuclear power. That's why over 80% of power generation in France is nuclear. And that's why China, with only 3% uh, of its power generation coming from nuclear, has these very ambitious goals to try to grow that. And over the next 20 years, they want to be in the same position as the United States and have at least 20% of their power, the base load power, the backbone of the electricity grid, be nuclear. It sits on your own soil. You control that power. It's security of supply as much as it is that reliability and, uh, and the fact that it uh, really contributes to reducing our carb carbon footprint. Uh, 
that's me you know th those are simply the drivers of why we're seeing more nuclear reactors on the construction today than any other time in the history of nuclear power and it's remarkable to be in any industry and talk about unprecedented growth right uh, yet have an element of that growth be in this case be at the uranium price uh, again be lagging the fundamental picture that is so positive and so bullish well, that's an amazing statistic you you shared with us. Three percent of China's electricity is produced from nuclear power. I mean, it just goes to show why the way I look at it here, as far as plants that are in construction, planned or proposed between China and India, it looks like it's at least half of all that growth. Are you are you at all concerned that if there's a downturn in China, if the economy takes a downturn, or in India, that this could curb? Their nuclear ambitions as far as electricity, or will this continue, you think, regardless? Well, I think, as you pointed out, I mean, the World Nuclear Association uh, lists that over 400 nuclear reactors are currently operable in over 30 different countries. The 60 that are under construction have gone through extremely rigorous studies and billions of dollars of commitments and investment before they can, you can, before you can break ground. Um, these are uh, some of the best engineered uh, industrial complexes in the world, these nuclear power plants. And so uh, what I mean by all this, Chris, is that I believe any country, any utility that commits to building a nuclear power plant, uh, the commitment both in terms of time, energy, and financial resources is so great that, uh, you know, once that commitment has been made, uh, these projects are seen through. And once they're built, these nuclear reactors have anywhere between 40 to 50 year lives. And so they really become a stable in, the, in, a, in a basically an energy portfolio. Uh, and so I think it, it really is a long-term business. It's a long-term source of power generation. Uh, and I don't think any of the planning that goes around it is uh, near-term or, 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 or necessarily subject to quick decisions to turn on and off. Yeah, I imagine in addition to that, I mean, obviously, like you're saying, the Chinese leadership especially takes a long-term view but there's probably some other non-economic factors involved. Reduce, you know, the need to reduce air pollution in China, uh, complying with climate change protocols, etc. Um, let's talk about the U.S. Though, I, what, what's shocking in the U.S. I don't know if everyone realizes this. I grew up in the '70s, but the there was about a hundred reactors, I believe, in place now. And before Three Mile Island, there were probably another hundred that were planned and I think scuttled in the 70s and 80s thereafter. And I think now we have about five that are expected to come online by 2020. Could you, do you see continued U.S. acceptance of, of nuclear power and growth? Is it gonna make a comeback? Does it, is the Trump administration beneficial for that or or will should it grow regardless? Uh, this, uh, uh, this change uh, in administration coming up uh, is, is really going to have significant impact for nuclear power in the U.S. Um, what I mean by that is that let's not make uh, you know any bones about it. I mean, uh, nuclear power in the, in the U.S. Uh, is uh, a very important industry. As we mentioned, it's 20% uh, of the power generation. But more importantly, it's 65% of carbon-free electricity generation in the United States comes from nuclear. Now, every utility in the U.S. has to meet the uh, EPA regulation to curb their carbon footprint over the next uh, uh, five to 10 years. And the only way to do that is further reliance on nuclear power. Now, historically, uh, you have uh, a sort of a, a theme where Democrats 
in the White House are okay with nuclear, but definitely not the biggest or loudest advocates, and Republicans historically have been the biggest supporters. We have an outgoing president here and President Obama that really almost refused to use the word nuclear in any of his uh, State of the Union addresses. And you have a very clear position by uh, the incoming Trump administration and uh, President-elect Trump himself on uh, how bullish and positive he is on nuclear power and its importance to the U.S. Uh, grid and economy. Don't forget all the very high-paying jobs uh, that are associated with uh, a thriving nuclear industry and the energy independence that uh, nuclear power, again, is associated with. Uh, so I believe that uh, we're looking at a very fundamentally positive turning point here for nuclear power. Uh, one of the last Republicans to be Energy Secretary in the United States, Spencer Abraham, uh, who was uh, Energy Secretary under George W. Bush, uh, is the chairman of uh, my company, Uranium Energy Corp. He's our executive chairman. And some of the key people that worked uh, under him at the Department of Energy uh, are now part of the Trump transition team. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, big advocates for nuclear power. Uh, and so I think this is an important topic to pay attention to. I think in the news right now, perhaps other, uh, other kind of topics are getting more attention, maybe some of the back and forth between the Taiwanese president calling Trump and things like that just always get the front page news. But I think behind the scenes, if you pay attention to uh, the makeup of the team and the makeup of this administration, it bodes extremely well for a uh, very exciting four years of growth for nuclear industry in the U.S. There are a number of reactors under con construction in the U.S., uh, so uh, there, there definitely is uh, uh, basically an expansion of that. But at the same time today, with uh, 100 nuclear reactors uh, operating in, in the U.S., this is the biggest nuclear market in the world. You know, it's almost 25% of operable nuclear, nuclear reactors in the world are in the U.S. So this is a very strategic market, uh, and um, I think yeah, it's going to be very exciting to see what happens uh, with the new administration. Certainly way more bullish than what we have seen in the last eight years. So we have a uranium price that's at, as you mentioned, 12-year lows. We have the demand that we all see that should, if anything, we should continue uh, to strengthen we have, at best, probably a shaky supply picture. I mean, it's all pointing to higher price, and we've seen the higher price from a historical perspective in 02 to 07. You know, a lot of people may not realize that the uranium to a nuclear power plant, from an economic perspective, is considered price inelastic, meaning they'll pay whatever the price is. Because a lot of people instinctively think, well, if uranium goes up 12 times or what have you, wouldn't there be some pushback on, on demand because it's so much more expensive? Can you explain why, why that's not the case, why demand really is kind of invariant to the, the price of uranium? It basically, I mean, this will be a short answer. I mean, bottom line is that uranium makes up uh, a very insignificant portion of the total cost to generate electricity for nuclear power plants, period. And uh, when you look at um, uh, electricity generation costs and it's... Uh, uh, sensitivity to commodity price, you see huge volatility with natural gas, for example. Natural gas prices go up and those gas-fired power plants all of a sudden see a big increase in their ability and cost to generate electricity. Uh, if you look at a chart over 30 years of um, the cost input in terms of uranium cost for a nuclear reactor and the cost to generate power is the flattest line you're going to see on a graph. Um, and, um, and that's a very important characteristic of nuclear power. Back in 2007, 
when uranium was at $140 a pound, U.S. utilities were buying uranium at those prices, and you know no one was arguing or complaining. And, and uh, that's a really interesting market to be in, right? If you see the oil price over $100 a barrel, everyone starts talking about how it could be an impediment to economic growth, uh, and that's not a characteristic shared with uh, uh, uranium and, uh, and nuclear power generation. So, very important point that you raised, and um, uh, definitely, uh, definitely one that again uh, argues well for the bull case. This is definitely a unique time period for uranium in general. Can you tell us a little bit about Uranium Energy Corp that you're the founder and CEO of? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, um, we're basically part of a very exclusive club of companies worldwide that have the license and, um, uh, and other sort of uh, infrastructure for producing and processing uranium. Uh, there's only there's less than 10 companies in the world that basically have production capabilities. So there's definitely a scarcity of uh, uh, suppliers and uh, uh, companies with production capability, but uh, we're one of them. We're a U.S. company. We're listed on the NYCMKT. Uh, what's also unique about us is the way we uh, develop uranium projects and mine them in South Texas and Paraguay. We use a method called in-situ recovery. Uh, it's uh, definitely a method that uh, has its production cost uh, in the lowest quartile of cost for uranium mining, and it's environmentally friendly because of the very uh, limited environmental impact it has compared to conventional mining being open pit and underground mining. The uh, operations we have in South Texas uh, really benefit from this technology, so we use the institute recovery method down there. Uh, we own the Hobson uranium processing plant, uh, which is fully licensed and built. And we have uh, one mine up uh, that was completely built uh, called Palangana. And we have a, a number of other projects at uh, various stages from being fully permitted to being under permitting to exploration and development as part of our South Texas hub and spoke strategy. Uh, we're doing the same thing in South Texas in terms of targeting deposits that are amenable to the Institute Recovery Method down in South America and Paraguay. And we've acquired some conventional projects in Colorado and Arizona that really give us leverage for the higher uranium price uh, when that uh, when the price uh, gets to levels above $60 a pound. So we're completely unhedged. And that's a unique characteristic in the uranium business, Chris, because most uranium producers have signed long-term contracts because utilities really want to sign these long-term contracts so they have predictable sources of supply. We always saw that as counterintuitive to what our investors want to see, which is full exposure to the uranium price. And so um, we refused to sign long-term contracts with a fixed price and ceiling. It's hurt us a bit with the uranium price falling the way it has the last few years, but we believe it's absolutely the right thing to do to be 100% unhedged when the commodity price for uranium finally turns. Um, we'll be able to capture the full upside. Um, again, the fact that we've really de-risked our business and are sitting on infrastructure and uh, uh, fully permitted facilities uh, definitely distinguishes us. You know, Chris, it's, it's interesting. In 2006, 2007, there were maybe uh, almost 600 uranium companies worldwide, uh, up from 20 in 2004. Uh, so in a very short time span, there was all of a sudden um, such a hard market for uranium developed, uh, arguably somewhat frothy. And we've gone from 600 companies worldwide back to probably, again, under 20 again. Uh, and so the, the, the ability to be able to say that you're in the business today with infrastructure uh, and a team that uh, has basically seen and done it all. I mean, we have an executive chairman and Spencer Abraham, the former United States Secretary of Energy, 
who ran the Department of Energy, who currently sits on the board of directors of Occidental Petroleum, a major oil and gas company. Uh, our executive vice president, Scott Melby, was formerly the president of Cameco Inc. Cameco is the world's largest uranium mining company. Um, and so, you know, you, you look at our executive suite, you look at the asset base, and you have the making and you have the people that uh, have the experience of having been either at the world's largest uranium mining company or the Department of Energy and bringing all that experience into a very entrepreneurial company. Our business is only 11 years old. And so we're still young and have quite a bit of entrepreneurial uh, spirit and energy in the company. And uh, insiders, including myself, are very um, uh, active owners. I mean, you know, we were uh, uh, large shareholders of the company. We regularly buy stock and add to our position. So we really believe these levels are quite depressed and an attractive entry point, and we're putting our money where our mouth is. Well, Mira, thank you for an excellent overview of the supply and demand dynamics for uranium and the opportunity that exists today. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming in. It was great to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me.